All right, Jonah chapter 2. So if you recall, the Lord Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, that he who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Remember that verse, okay? I take this to mean that the prospect of, of finding and losing is the self-conscious battle which requires some degree of faith. Um, since we cannot serve two masters, uh, of course, Jonah was bumbling along trying to prove that particular thesis wrong. Uh, it stands to reason that one, one is always in pursuit of either finding life or losing his life. And you can't have it both ways. Finding one's life usually consists of several things. Um, elevating the self, self instead of elevating the lordship of our covenant God. Um, being unwaveringly obnoxious oops, about, the, about the present over against God's plans for the present and the future. Um, and also, you could say, finding one's life consists of being generally wary about obedience to the law of God. Jonah was all of those things. Jonah was such a person. And as we saw last week, Jonah was trying to find his life, which can only be achieved by going in the complete opposite direction of the Lord's commands. In other words, to, to attempt to find life apart from the giver of life is actually loss, Jesus says. It's suicidal. It's altogether deadly. So hence, Jesus is warning about it. If, if attempting, follow this train of thought, because we're going to tease it out some more later. But if attempting to find your life apart from the life giver is death, then it is also true that losing your life with the death giver is actually life. So the opposite's true. I'll say it one more time just to follow, because I think Jesus is saying something that's applicable to Jonah. If attempting to find your life apart from the life giver is death, then it's also true that losing your life with the death giver is life. So stay with me on that. <laughs> I want to explain that some more. So Jesus says elsewhere that we should fear God because he can destroy both the body and the soul. He says that in Matthew 10, 28. In other words, Jesus is Lord over not just life, but he's Lord over death. He's death's master and he's death's commander. He is king over life and heaven. He is king over death and hell. So this means that we have to lose, that is forsake, our sin-plagued pursuit of life apart from Christ. That's, that's the only way you, you, you fix that. So his death becomes our death, and the math works out to that equaling life. So let's look at our text. We'll just walk through it as is our normal custom, and we'll expound on that idea some more. Uh, look at verse 17 from chapter 1. Now the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah's incorrigibility and his descent into finding life on his own terms ends in peril. Uh, never been swallowed by a fish? Can't imagine it's a great time. Remember that the Lord was the one who appointed this great fish to swallow Jonah. All right, so this is not a random act of nature as though nature functions on its own volition apart from the will of God. Rather, God does this to Jonah, or more accurately, we could say that God does this for Jonah. It's a gift, 
despite the grotesque thought of being inside the guts of a squishy, gooey, seafoody smelling fish. Makes me nauseous thinking about it. So the takeaway, unlike Jonah, even the fish carries out its divine commission. Verse one of chapter two. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth that is the belly of Sheol, the place of the dead. You heard my voice. So Jonah prays, not the first time in his life, but it is odd that in the story he waits until now to pray. Much of what he says is from the book of Psalms, actually. Um, He's clearly familiar with the, the book of Psalms. This is a prayer of thanksgiving. It includes this standard procedure prayer in the book of Psalms. It's an introduction to attest to the fact that that his prayer is for deliverance and it went to God and God heard, that sort of thing. Um, God hears his people's prayers, after all. (laughs) We believe that. The prayer also, he recounts this crisis, this crisis moment that's happening in his life and what led to his deliverance. And finally, it ends with a vow to worship and serve God in light of that deliverance. So that's just all of chapter 2, and it's standard. It's all over the book of Psalms. Now, I said this last week, and I'm going to explain it to you and speak to it here again. Jonah cries from the belly of Sheol, which is the place of dead. Okay, That's just normal, common understanding of Old Testament and even into the New Testament. You go to the book of Luke, and Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. But then there's like this chasm and the rich man's over there and he's thirsty. He can't get a drink and he wants Jesus, you know, to warn his family. Hey, this is not a good situation. Warn them. So there's this understanding of Sheol being the place of dead. When someone dies, that's where they are. And, And my understanding is Jesus went there to proclaim the gospel and release those in Abraham's bosom to take them back to the Father, and, and that's where they await the final resurrection. So, this may seem rather pedantic and closed-minded of me, but it is my understanding that living people do not go to the place of dead, of the dead. So, Jonah, obviously he wrote this account after the events took place. He didn't pull out his parchment paper in the belly of the whale. Okay, here's my prayer. I'm going to write this down. This is a literary work afterwards. Um, which to me, I, I think, implies and favors the interpretation that Jonah, here's how I understand this. Jonah was tossed into the sea by the sailors. He died. The fish came along to resuscitate and sustain him, which again, as we said last week, um, ties to Assyria, who was going to swallow Israel whole and sustain Israel while they're in captive, being captive. So while in the fish three days and three nights, Again, that's a common reference to death in the ancient world. Um, He prays. I believe he died. He was resuscitated. He's in the belly. He prays. And God requires the fish to spit him back out in order to give this whole thing another go. Another college try, I guess. So while in the water and he's struggling, Jonah, he's, he's tossed about. He's distressed with a flood of emotional experience to write about later. And that's what this prayer is. Now, again, that's my take. I could be wrong. And no, I'm not dying on that hill. Verse 3. For you had cast me into the deep, 
into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Dire straits and circumstances comes from unspeakable rebellion. Okay, you do bad things, bad things tend to happen. Note that Jonah, he never once confesses his sin. Okay, I want you to note that. Um, people treat this as a prayer of repentance, but as far as I'm concerned, it is not, at least not in the technical sense like we see in, for example, Psalm 51, the greatest chapter on repentance ever penned from David. So, in other places in Psalms too. So notice that God cast him into the deep. Jonah knows that the sailors threw him in, but here he does acknowledge, well, it was God who did it. Um, he knows who really threw him in, and that was the Lord God. Verse 4, So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. So Jonah, in a sense, he's been exiled. Remember, Jonah is Israel. Jonah's been exiled for his disobedience. That's the very thing that Israel was going to experience just a few short decades after this incident. So the prayer, he focuses on his need for deliverance, though he doesn't fully see it, as we'll see in chapter 4. But Jonah is confident. He's confident in the holy temple. Why does he bring up the temple? And twice he's going to bring it up. He's confident in the holy temple because that's the place where God's presence dwelt among men. That was uh, heaven and earth is, uh, is where it, um, the temple is where heaven and earth met. That's where God chose to dwell among his people. Of course, Solomon and others even acknowledged God doesn't dwell, dwell in temples made by human hands, like as if we can contain him. Oh, he's our pet God and he's in Jerusalem in the temple. We know that's not the case. But he's confident. He's confident in God. He desires to see the temple again. He desires to experience that, at least to some degree, again. And it is curious that Jonah doesn't, in his prayer, he doesn't demonstrate his culpability in the events that brought on this whole precarious situation. He, he, he doesn't see it. He has descended towards death and he can't see straight despite holding out hope for the temple. But he keeps going. Look at verse 5. He says, Water encompassed me to the point of death, which, again, I take to be literal. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. So Jonah, this is um, retrospectively, after the fact, he recalls while in the fish and in the water, his descent towards death. The water and the sea was everywhere that water goes, which is to say everywhere. It was all around him. He was immersed fully in, in God's judgment against him, his purifying judgment. So his descent to the seafloor is, is a descent to death. Seaweeds involved. He even talks about it here. Weeds were wrapped around my head. We're talking about a chaotic situation. And actually, if we're honest, Jonah is actually describing, J Jonah's description here is a burial at sea. It's like a burial. Um, he ran from Yahweh, and all he sees and experiences is death. <laughs> that's all you ever experience. When you run from God, that's all you get. And, of course, death is the very thing that God promised to sinners. If you eat from that, you will surely die. Verse 6. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Jonah is now at rock bottom. He's at the foundations of the earth. Um, Sheol, he describes, the place of the dead, has prison bars. 
Other ancient um, Near Eastern literature describes the same idea. Um, the, the, the place of the dead being a place of like a prison bar, prison bars. Um, and, and not only that, he's behind them now. He's at his lowest, and yet it seems as though Jonah is still missing a proper perspective. The one praying for deliverance, ironically, is still at the focus, okay? Um, as, as if his experience somehow trumps the supremacy of God. Um, we'll talk about this later, but we like those types of prayers that are just about us, and probably we shouldn't. Verse 7, While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. It's interesting, he's trying to escape the presence of the Lord. But here he acknowledges, well, I was praying, and you heard my prayer at the bottom of the sea. <laughs> See, he recalls to mind that the, very, the very Lord that he's trying to get away from. If God hears him, God obviously must be within earshot distance. His temple's in Jerusalem, but his temple is really the entire world. He's even there in the most remotest of places. Indeed, Sheol itself, God is there. Verse 8. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Jonah compares himself to idol worshipers, condemning them without condemning the idol that he's erected. Jonah sees himself to be this faithful, ideal candidate for what, it, what does it mean to be a faithful covenant member? But while pagans, of course, they worship idols, they deserve God's wrath. You know, I'm, I'm a model student here. I'm the poster child for covenant obedience. These other people worship idols. So, again, irony, the guy actually experiencing God's wrath is, it seems, rather self-deluded about his situation. He's no better than the idol worshipers because he's an idol worshiper. Verse 9. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Common language in the Psalms. Salvation is from the Lord. Jonah now finally does what the sailors had already done. What did the sailors do in verse 16? They vowed and they made a sacrifice. <laughs> Uh, he's a little late to the party, though. Jo Jonah is a day late and a dollar short. Jonah has assumed way, way, way too much. He believes that his relationship with God is just dandy. Um, while the sa sailors were idol worshipers, um, they were the ones who should have been tossed into the sea. Uh, but God gives him a taste of his own medicine. <laughs> the opposite is actually the case. Jonah says that he will sacrifice with thanksgiving which is a good thing to do, no doubt. And, the, and the, the Psalms, again, are flooded with such things. But, but he confesses the truth of God's mighty hand of salvation. Another theme in the Psalms. Salvation is from the Lord. But the question is, is he a changed man? He confesses it. He's a doctrinal student. He's a prophet. He's been immersed in the, in the book of Psalms. He, he's praying it here. He's pulling from David, who lived about 300 years before him. You know, he, he's pulling from these texts. But is he a changed man? Well, you and I both know the answer is no, not from chapter 4. So note the irony yet again. Jonah wanted to circumvent Nineveh's deliverance, so he hightailed it in the complete opposite direction, all in the idolatrous belief that Jonah can somehow stay the hand of God, as if he can control God and what God does. 
His actions, as we saw last week, um, pointed the sailors to the one true God in order for them to convert and, and, and sacrifice with thanksgiving. It's hilarious. He doesn't want any pagan to come to the grace of God. So in his disobedience, that's what happens. It's quite... You should chuckle at that at home when no one's listening. And those are two things Jonah finally says, well, I'm going to do that next. Again, you're late to the party. And lastly, verse 10. And this is um, kind of gross, but it's fitting. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. <laughs> so having been resuscitated from death, in my view, and he's kept safe in the belly of the large fish, Jonah is vomited not into the sea, but back onto the dry land from whence he came. <laughs> you want to vomit yourself back into the sea? I'm going to vomit you back onto the land. Ha. So we can call it God's return to sender. <laughs> he being the sender, putting the piece of mail back on track to its divine destination. If you recall the language of vomiting, gross, right? But if you recall many years before, the Canaanites were vomited out of the land of promise so Israel could gain their inheritance. Um, Jonah vomited himself into the sea at the hands of pagans, but God brought him back. Um, God wants him on land, not sea, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And people, and all people, by the way, are commanded to worship him, including the Gentiles. It's sort of like a reset button. You, you disobeyed? All right, I'll kill you and resuscitate you, and you will go, and you will do what you're told. Not good parenting advice. So the fish worships and serves the Lord. People must do so. Even the mountains and rocks cry out. Even the trees worship the living God. People must do so. So there's work to be done. No time to go swimming in the nihilistic pool. Besides, it's pretty disgusting when you realize that the word vomit is actually the right word, the perfect word to vividly describe what happened. It was disgusting and it was meant to be. So let's sort through this some more. It should not be surprising that Jonah's prayer uh, he, he prays in a manner consistent with his character. Shouldn't surprise us. Some people look at this prayer and think, what a model prayer. It's just unbelievably great. And I'm more of a skeptic because I don't see any repentance. I don't see, I see him affirming things that he knows. And I think my view is um, justified given what we find out later too. But he, he, you know, all of us pray in that manner. If you're looking for a prayer of repentance, again, read Psalm 51. Jonah 2 is not that type of prayer. But Jonah's actions are completely and utterly out of step and out of kilter with God himself. How could he possibly pray anything different in that moment? Prayers, please hear me, are only as good as the one praying. Okay, Without Christ, the prayers are very, very stinky. We need Jesus to clean the prayers up for us. So even, even our pathetic prayers, you know, the ones that are, that are half-hearted, where we're not really talking, we're just sort of hearing ourselves talk, the ones that aren't really communing with God, we're just sort of saying them, the ones that are really about us and not about God's kingdom and His glory, you know, those prayers, even God uses them for His glory. God uses Jonah. He's defiant in rebellion. And yet even in that rebellion, God converts pagans on a ship, on the boat. God can use it. 
See, Jonah, I think, is typical of many Christians today, and we should all be first in line, by the way. And here's what I mean. They simply want far more grace given to them than what they intend to dish out to others. Grace for me and none for thee. We could chant that at the next rally. Jonah has this aberrant view of the covenant Lord. In his mind, God is unconditionally committed to his relationship to Israel and especially towards Jonah. And here's what you should know. This is not an overly zealous position. It's a misguided, I think, short-sighted position. And why? It's not as though God isn't unconditionally committed to his covenant people. As if those are the only two options, right? It's a fallacy of false dichotomy. Well, either he's unconditional or he's not. That's not what we're dealing with. It's more of a question of what does unconditional actually mean? If unconditional means that God gives covenant breakers a pass, like you get the special hall pass, so you get to be disobedient, name the name of Christ, and not have any ramifications. It's not, if that's what it means, then we're no longer dealing with the covenant Lord who disciplines those he loves. If unconditional means that God is ferociously committed to the sanctification of his people, then now we have a robust definition that can include the disobedience. Because Jonah was a covenant member. He was a part of Israel. He's a prophet, for crying out loud. Like, he had an important task and a role in the kingdom. But he completely walks in the opposite direction of obedience. But Jonah thinks his unconditional commitment means that Jonah just gets to be a, you know, fuddy-duddy curmudgeon all the time. No, his disobedience means God's going to crush him and bring him to obedience because he loves us. See, God does not move the goalposts when it comes to his people. To whom much is given, we know much is what? Required, no doubt. But this doesn't mean that he just turns a blind eye to, the, to churlish or stubborn, rebellious covenant members. See, Jonah, Jonah believes rather vociferously, rather passionately, He's excited about it. He believes that Nineveh is completely beyond the reach of grace. And I'm sympathetic to that view when I look at Washington, D.C. <laughs> or Richmond, for that matter. Sure, Jonah prays, you know, salvation is of the Lord. Amen. But that salvation isn't for them. They're far too wicked. See, Jonah wants the theodicy question sorted out. If you're not familiar with theodicy, theodicy is just, it deals with the relationship between divine justice and mercy. If God is good, how in the world can you explain evil? That sort of thing. Jonah wants that figured out. They're wicked. Why are you going to send me to go give them grace and warn them so that they'll repent? And I know you'll forgive them, God, because that's just how you are. Jonah's toying with these issues. Jonah wants God to simply mete out his retributive justice on guilty sinners. Just do it. It's a simple formula. If they are evil, God should just smite them. Okay? And, uh, and, and when you think about guys like Bill Gates and some of these people, then my position is either God should destroy them or convert them. And he will do both of those, one or the other, either of those. So when God calls Jonah to go there because to Nineveh because that's <laughs> because he's going to do do the exact opposite of what Jonah thinks should happen his reaction is nothing short of a, than a toddler's temper tantrum at Walmart having missed nap time when your worldview 
is out of sync with the grace of God, the problem isn't the grace of God, as Jonah will indicate later. The problem is your worldview. He's made two wrong assumptions. One, he's assumed way too much about his own character. Two, he's assumed far too less about God's character. See, the prayer here is one of a dying man who knows he's wrong, but he still hangs on to the truth that he knows, but he's thus far been unwilling to practice. He's a confessional. He's, as, he's more reformed than Calvin. He confesses the truth. He's got the Westminster Confession of Faith retroactively. He confesses the truth, but he's unwilling to practice it. Jonah is a bona fide hypocrite. He's a hypocrite. But he's the type of hypocrite whose self-sufficiency is so deep, it's hard to dislodge. Um, he's he's self-deceived, so he can't see it. Which, which of us can see any of the blind spots we have? If you can see it, it's not a blind spot. He's self-deceived, right? If we're the problem, we're definitely not the solution, that sort of thing. See, only God's divine intervention can dislodge the deepest pride in the heart of a man or a woman, or a child. And God does just that. If Jonah wants to find his life in Tarshish, he's going to lose it on the way. That's what Jesus says. He's going to find his life, but he's actually ultimately going to lose it. And there's a principle at play here, and I think it's a rather poignant one. The deeper the descent into death and rebellion, the greater the experience of God's grace. The deeper the descent, the greater the experience of God's grace. When everything tumbles off the back of the truck and into the ditch, when your life is completely in shambles, when you can't talk your way out of it now, when you're at the end of your rope, completely undone, that is the place where you learn how to depend solely on the grace of God. Because if you're not at that point, you're depending on something other than God. Yourself, something out, your confessional statement, when you're depending on something else, you haven't hit the bottom yet. You only, go, you only go to the bottom when you realize the bottom is all you have. And now God can rescue you. That's Jonah. You simply must lose your life in order to find it. Um, lose what you have in Adam. Gain what you have in Christ. This is the only way. This is the only way it works. So let's get more practical. Um, we must resist at every turn the urge to be self-sufficient, entirely self-sufficient. You know, there are things we want our kids to learn, you know, some cooking, cleaning, that sort of thing, and that's good. We want them to be self-sufficient in that regard, but we, we don't want them to be so self-sufficient that they're like Jonah, not depending on God, okay? Um, think about this. Showing signs of vulnerability, for example, is viewed in our culture as a grievous sin. Um, confessing, men, this is an area, confessing to someone that you're not really in a good spot is viewed as this egregious thing. At least that's what the shame police think. So we sort of ma machismo sets in, right? We're, oh yeah, I'm, oh, no, I'm good. Things are great. This unbiblical ideas like that gladly fill the void. And this is why, frankly, everyone has to pretend all the time to have it together all the time. But this sort of spirit of the age thing won't last. God, I believe, is shaking the world. Indeed, he shook Jonah's world. Indeed, he will shake your world. 
if you don't come to him and come to his grace. This, this fickle scaffolding on our sin-sick hearts are always torn apart in the face of Jesus Christ. Always. We like to build our own facade where you're dying inside and you won't tell anyone so no one knows. And you're not confessing it to God. And you don't have a friend you can confide in because you, you have to have it all together, that sort of thing. And suddenly you've built this facade and no one knows the real you. And you're running, you're running from God. See, there's no hiding from him, though. You can't even descend into the belly of Sheol and somehow expect to shake his presence. Jonah tried to flee, but the Lord tailed him the entire way. See, Jonah's prayer was and is a sober reminder that life apart from Christ is death. Jonah was lost, condemned, and he was imprisoned in the sea of his own rebellion. Prone to wander, Jonah understood the predicament that he had caused. He was wayward, but God was constant. God never changed. He was unstable. He was faltering. God was even-keeled and resolute. Jonah, like Israel, presumed upon the grace of God, and as a result, he frankly... Maybe Jonah was the first Pharisee, I don't know, but he developed a Pharisaical attitude towards people who weren't just like him. God, however, is the creator and sustainer of all men. He sustains. Isn't it funny? Jonah is in rebellion, breathing God's air the whole time. God sustained him and showed him grace every step of his rebellion. And the grace wasn't even that he got to go back to the land. The grace was found in the large fish that brought him back to reality. And even then, the real deliverance wasn't even the fish. That was the vehicle. The deliverance was the bringing of Jonah, the bringing back of Jonah from his own self-induced death. Psalm 32.2 says, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. So we, we saw last week, and we're going to end, I just want to examine more of Jesus' thinking behind this. We saw last week that Jesus, he schooled the religious leaders by telling them about the sign of Jonah. And Emberly read that earlier, and last week we read it too. Um, the belly of the whale is taken by Jesus to describe the tomb where his dead body would lie for three days and three nights. So note, note that Jesus died first. Where did he die? He didn't die in the tomb. He died on the cross. They took his body down per their um, ceremonial customs, uh, and they buried him. Then he went to the belly, to the tomb, okay? Um, Like Jonah, Jesus would die. Unlike Jonah, who was resuscitated, Jesus was resurrected. So there's a reason I think that Jesus chose this particular sign, and we did talk about it somewhat last week, and I want to expand upon it. The, Lord, the, the Pharisees weren't learning the lesson of Jonah. Okay, That's the point he's making. You, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. It happened a thousand years ago or 750 years ago. Jonah. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> That's sort of Jesus' attitude. Like, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You had a sign 750 years ago and you don't care. You don't care. They didn't learn the lessons of Jonah. Don't fight against God, because they were working against Christ. And don't develop a superiority complex. Like you're somehow better. 
But there's more to it and has a lot to do with Jonah's prayer. See, Jonah's descent led him to death, the pit of Sheol, the place of the dead. And the reason, again, that this happened is because Jonah was trying to find his life. He was seeking to find his life. Jonah thought that he could escape the presence of God. He thought he could live his best life now. He's read the book. Um, His finding was his undoing, his losing, which is what Jesus warns against. The only way to actually find your life is to lose it. But listen, the only one who could ever actually say this and do this perfectly was Jesus. Okay? So indeed, we can only say this because of Jesus. Here's what I mean. Jesus lived a perfect life. He was sinless. This put him in this unique situation to lose his life and thus find it again, trusting Abba Father the entire way. So in one sense, it wasn't as if Jesus needed to lose his life on his own account, as if he had done something wrong. He is life, therefore he has life. So he doesn't need to go looking for it, and he doesn't need to lose it. He's beyond those categories. He's not a sinner. He's not stuck in this unsolvable conundrum. But what if God intends to bring about a great Jonah reversal? If if the Lord of life and death, the triune covenant establishing God, wants to bring all of us Jonahs out of death, okay, the Jonahs being every last person on this God-blessed earth, if he wants to bring us out of that, he must take it upon himself to pull us out of sin and death. We can't do it. We're just as bad as Jonah. Enter Jesus. So for Jonah, the great fish whale was his tomb. That was his tomb. It it was his Sheol, but it was also the place where God saved him. The fish was a sign of death, but guess what? It was also a sign of life. Jesus' tomb is a sign of death, but it's also a sign of life. Why? Because it's empty. All who enter into Christ's tomb with him there are laid to rest to the law's covenantal demands that we could never uh, obey and were raised on the third day. In other words, listen, to, to actually find life, okay? God being the life giver, he's the possessor of life and so on. To actually find life, must, one must go to the tomb of Jesus. To find life, you have to die. Jonah did it, Jesus did it, but only Jesus can actually give it. Why? Because the risen Jesus is Lord over not just life, but death. So to find your life, you must crucify and bury your lusts. To find your life, you must crucify and bury your anger, bury your uh, impatience, bury all of those things. To find your life, you must crucify and bury your greed, your idolatry, your selfishness, your pride. To find life, you must crucify your flesh and bury it in the tomb with Christ. And then, here's the beauty of it, only then can Christ raise it up to new life. Jonah tried to find his life and he lost it. Now we can lose our life in Christ and truly find it. That's what Jesus meant. I think this is, this is the wonderful gospel that Jonah was supposed to preach to Nineveh, but didn't. This is the wonderful gospel that Jesus did preach and enact, and it's ours for the taking by grace and faith alone. So, friends, be swallowed up in the death of Christ. 
be buried with him there in the Holy of Holies and believe that those sins are truly and finally dealt with. You are forgiven. Then and only then can you experience the freedom of finding life in Christ. The grave vomited Jesus up to the world that he now possesses all because he had won the battle. He is Lord over life. He is Lord over death. Let's pray. Father, you have been gracious to us. Indeed, you were gracious to Jonah. And we may pretentiously think, well, we're not that bad. But the truth is, that is a superiority complex we do not want. The various sins we contribute to this world are sins against you. Small, large, you name it. Even the medium-sized sins, some of the respectable sins, our condescending attitude, our pride, our self-righteousness. We didn't need to be swallowed by oil and then brought back. We confess that we were swallowed by Christ in his tomb and brought back. So we confess in repentance, but we also confess in faith. And we come to you, Lord Jesus, now to this table of communion and ask for your blessing as we recall to mind the sacrifice you made on the cross. So Spirit, would you help us to to deal with these issues, to apply them, to grow, to mature, to be about your kingdom for the sake of the gospel of the kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. amen.